everyone. Welcome back to Here in Apologetics. Today we have a really fun conversation. Um, it's going to be a debate on the problem of evil. We have Emerson Green, who runs the Counter Apologetics podcast and the Walden podcast. And we have Kaldun Aziz Swais, who's a professor. He runs Logically Faithful, which is a YouTube slash blog slash podcast, all kinds of fun stuff. So uh, welcome both you guys for this uh, debate. It should be a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Yes, it's really so much fun. So a quick rundown on the format. We're going to have 20-minute opening statements, 10-minute rebuttals. We're going to have 20 minutes of live discussion and then 10 minutes of Q&A to wrap things up. Um, and just before that, we're going to have really brief introductions for both of these guys, and then we're going to get going. Um, so Emerson, since you're going to start us off, do you want to give a brief introduction? Sure. Uh, my name is Emerson Green. Um, I run Counter Apologetics, which is a podcast. Um, I also have a Walden Pod. Um but yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at WaldenPod. But uh, you know, when I deconverted, it it was um, a little you know difficult because my entire life kind of like orbited around you know ministry, and um, there were a couple podcasts that helped me through that like really psychologically destabilizing time, and I kind of wanted to do that same thing for um, other people, and also I just find this stuff fascinating. So um, you know, that's what brings me here. Well, thank you. Um, and then Kaldun uh, as well. Feel free to introduce yourself. Sure. I'm uh, Kaldun Swice. I have a ministry called Logically Faithful, which is geared toward engaging culture in a redemptive way and addressing suffering productively. I'm associate professor of philosophy at the City Colleges of Chicago. I love what I do. Primarily, I was constantly questioning everything as a kid, and I'm still doing it today. <laughs> But I'm actually good in a way that's getting paid for it, which is just amazing to me. Uh, I love what I do. I love um, uh, the God I worship, and uh, primarily in the area of the mind. And uh, uh, impetus for me is to ground my beliefs in what is true, not just what I want to be true. And that's just important to me in being logically faithful. Mm, that's exciting. And thank you both again for coming on and be willing to debate this important topic. Um, so with that being said, we're going to turn it over to you, Emerson, and then you'll have 20 minutes to kind of give your opening statement. And then, yeah, we'll go from there. So whenever you're ready, I'll start timing. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thank you for having me on again. I'm looking forward to finally putting this whole problem of evil business to rest once and for all after 2,500 years. Um, my own solution is that the best or my own feeling is that the best solution to the problem of evil is just that God doesn't exist. Um, I'll be arguing that other evidence held equal. God probably doesn't exist, given what we know about the suffering that occurs in our world. Um, today, I'm not making the case that God's existence is logically incompatible with suffering. Um, so I just wanted to plant the flag for theists um, starting off that I'm arguing that other evidence held equal. God probably doesn't exist, given facts about uh, suffering in our world. So... Um, you, couldn't, you could actually even agree with me at the end of this um, debate. You could think I'm correct about everything I'm going to say and remain a theist. Um, your work would be cut out for you, obviously. But, um, but uh, I just wanted to say that to hopefully get some people to lower their guard a little bit because, you know, there's a tendency to be kind of overly black and white about the other side and to think that, you know, if you're really a Christian, you, you might feel pressure to, like, disagree with every little thing I say. But um, that's not true. Um, you could even agree with me at the end of this and uh, still be a theist. So um, when I was an atheist, I used to really misunderstand the problem of evil. Like the problem of evil didn't have much to do with my deconversion. Um, I kind of thought atheists were just sort of whining about the way the world was in like a sort of unbecoming way. But um, the more I looked into the problem, I realized that the charge is really that there's a lot of evidence that is pretty surprising on the hypothesis of theism 
but that the same evidence is unsurprising on naturalism. So the central point is that I don't think these facts that we're about to discuss would be facts if the Christian God existed. Um, once you assume an absence of God, certain facts about suffering just kind of fall into place quite neatly. Um, tragedies that befall moral and non-moral agents, divine silence during tragedies, natural evil, the moral randomness of our world, the millions upon millions of years of animal suffering. Um, on, a hypothesis of, on a hypothesis of indifference, these things are just, um, you know, not surprising. But when you insist there's an all-good, omnipotent God responsible for the world, you know, you have some explaining to do. Um, so the atheistic position I'll be defending is called the hypothesis of indifference. My claim is that certain facts about suffering, while compatible with theism, constitute strong evidence against the existence of God and in favor of indifference. So I'm going to offer three lines of evidence that support my claim that facts about the kinds, degree, and distribution of suffering are not best predicted by the hypothesis that there's an all-loving, all-powerful God designing it. Or in other words, with respect to evil, the world looks about as we'd expect it to look if God did not exist. Okay, so my first line of evidence is the biological role of pain and pleasure. So it's well known that pleasure is generally associated with beneficial experiences and pain with detrimental experiences. Uh, starvation, suffocation, dehydration, sleep, deprivation, uh, burns, wounds, and so on are correlated with pain. While uh, having sex, you know, um, filling a hungry stomach, sleep, rest after fatigue are correlated with, uh, you know, uh, pleasure. So, uh, pain is correlated with that which is maladaptive, anything that threatens survival and reproduction, and pleasure is correlated with anything that is uh, adaptive, you know, anything that aids survival and reproduction. So, importantly, examples of pain and pleasure that might not fall strictly in those categories can be easily understood as a byproduct of pains and pleasures that do. And this is true of all or nearly all of the suffering and pleasures in our world, not just of the human world, but that of non-human animals as well. Okay, so pain and pleasure are systematically correlated with evolutionary goals. In other words, survival and reproduction. But that is to say that they're not correlated with moral goals. There's no moral rhyme or reason to the distribution of suffering. Pain and pleasure are not systematically correlated with rewarding good and punishing evil, spiritual growth, not with moral or intellectual development, not with human fulfillment, survival and reproduction. So if naturalism is true, the amoral distribution of pain and pleasure determined by natural selection is not surprising in the least. If theism is true, God would not produce suffering or allow suffering without a morally justifying reason for doing so. Um, he's a good God, after all, so if there's suffering in creation, he must have a reason. Um, if we suppose that such reasons exist, that means that they just so happen to coincide with the predictions of evolutionary biology. Um, the odds of that are pretty slim. You know, like, maybe they'd occasionally line up, but most of the time? So this isn't an argument about evil in kind or degree, but the conditions under which evil occurs. If evil is instrumental, if it's for bringing about certain moral ends, then we should expect a distribution of evil to indicate its instrumentality. So I think it's pretty obvious that natural selection is an utterly amoral force and that pain and pleasure are correlated with adaptation and byproducts of adaptation. But to concede that point is to say that the distribution of pain and pleasure in our world is not organized according to moral principles. In other words, the distribution of pain and pleasure in our world is morally random, but God wouldn't create a morally random world. 
If he's good, he wouldn't create or allow suffering without some justifying moral reason. This doesn't appear to be the case, but if we assume that it is for the sake of argument, if we suppose such reasons exist, then you have to believe that God's moral reasoning regarding the distribution of pain and pleasure coincidentally lines up with the predictions of evolutionary biology. And to quote Jeff Lauder, that's a huge coincidence that naturalism doesn't need. So my second line of evidence is gratuitous suffering. Gratuitous suffering is evil that occurs for no reason. According to William Rowe, an instance of suffering is gratuitous if an omnipotent, omniscient being could have prevented it without losing some greater good or permitting some evil that's equally bad or worse. In other words, pointless suffering. If God is good, he wouldn't allow terrible evil to occur unless he had a reason. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it seems like an uncontroversial premise that God wouldn't want there to be avoidable, pointless, or unnecessary suffering with respect to the fulfillment of his purposes and an all-powerful being would be able to prevent such suffering. So, no apparent outweighing good comes out of gratuitous evils. And remember, we're not just talking about adult human beings. We're also talking about the gratuitous suffering of non-moral agents as well. So, to make it more explicit, um, we could put it like this. If God exists, gratuitous suffering wouldn't exist. Some gratuitous suffering probably exists. Conclusion, God probably doesn't exist. So I won't spend that much time defending that first premise, um, since it seems so obvious, like, if if God is good, then he wouldn't allow evil for no reason. So if you want to dispute the first premise, we can, can, we can come back to it later. Um, the second premise, that gratuitous suffering exists, is the one that I'll uh, focus on. So I took this example from events that took place somewhat recently, um, but it could describe any number of people over the millennia. So an earthquake natural evil, topples buildings, and, uh, you know, traps people under the rubble. And some of them don't die right away, but of dehydration. So there have been children who died alone, trapped under rubble for days, you know, before finally dying of dehydration. And if they had to die, then why not die instantly rather than slowly and agonizingly in fear and in isolation before finally dying? Does that seem necessary to you? It doesn't seem to lead to any greater good. Um, so I'm going to quote Arthur Schopenhauer. An explorer saw an immense field covered entirely with skeletons and took it to be a battlefield. However, they were nothing but skeletons of large turtles, five feet long, three feet broad, and of equal height. These turtles come this way from the sea in order to lay their eggs and then are seized on by wild dogs. With their united strength, these dogs lay them on their backs tear open their lower armor, the small scales of the belly, and devour them alive. But then a tiger often pounces on the dogs. Now all this misery is repeated thousands and thousands of times, year in, year out. For this, then, are these turtles born? For what offense must they suffer this agony? What is the point of this whole scene of horror? End quote. So I bring up animal suffering in particular because non-human animals are not typically considered moral or rational agents, so that makes the problem of gratuitous animal suffering especially appalling because it seems so much less likely that it would amount to anything greater. Like they can't, uh, you know, learn something or grow from what they go through. Um, for atheists, there's no one with both the power and inclination to prevent gratuitous evils. So this, along with the fact that gratuitous evils will naturally occur unless something intervenes to prevent them, explains why there is gratuitous evil. Theism can't help itself to this explanation, since on theism there does exist a being with both the power and inclination to, to prevent uh, gratuitous evil. 
So, um, for example, atheism in conjunction with plate tectonic theory um, can explain why devastating earthquakes would occur. Plate tectonic theory explains why there's a natural tendency for earthquakes to occur. And atheism can explain why there's no one with the power and inclination to prevent earthquakes. So atheism in conjunction with plate tectonic theory predicts that earthquakes will occur from time to time and cause pointless suffering for uh, adults, children, you know, humans and non-human animals. Theists can't help themselves to this explanation, since on theism, there's a being with both the power and inclination to prevent earthquakes and the gratuitous suffering that results. Okay. Um, I want to take a small detour to talk about skeptical theism because it's just the most common response to, um, you know, gratuitous suffering. So I think that there's gratuitous suffering in the world. Most people do. Um, you know, suffering that serves no greater purpose, you know, um, pointless suffering, genuine tragedy. But some believers, upon realizing that the existence of gratuitous suffering is good evidence against theism, have adopted a form of what I consider radical skepticism called skeptical theism. Um, the claim is that while uh, gratuitous suffering appears to exist, um, we can't infer its reality from its appearance because we're not in the same epistemic position as God. So God works in mysterious ways. Um, it's like an ant trying to understand a human. You know, it's arrogant to think that we could tell if suffering actually was pointless. So I have quite a few problems with skeptical theism, but um, let me just offer uh, two quick reasons to reject it. The first is phenomenal conservatism. According to Martin Smith, phenomenal conservatism is a prominent view in epistemology that says, if it seems to one that P is true in the absence of defeaters, one has justification for believing that P is true, end quote. So the world seems a certain way to you, and you're justified in thinking the world is how it seems until you've been given good reason to think otherwise. And just to be clear, this is just a starting point. So, you know, we're justified in thinking the world is as it seems in the absence of defeaters. You know, we're justified in thinking. So saying there might be a defeater, you know, it's arrogant to think there is no defeater is not the same as actually offering one. So if suffering seems gratuitous, we're rationally justified in thinking uh, that it is gratuitous until we've been given reason to think otherwise and the existence of gratuitous suffering is more likely on naturalism than on theism. So the fact that we seem to observe gratuitous suffering is evidence against theism. Um, so I mentioned, so radical skepticism might sound hyperbolic to some familiar with skeptical theism, but the reason I say that is because skeptical theism is compatible with any possible set of observations. So, you know, we could literally be in hell and a skeptical theist could make the same argument. Um, the bottom line is that I think we're well within our right in saying that we know gratuitous suffering exists, not only for moral agents, but for non-moral agents as well. Um, excuse me. Uh, another reason I doubt skeptical theism is that it implies that God has decided to make the world morally unintelligible to us. Um, so let me just quote Thomas Nagel. The theistic responses to the argument from evil, of which I'm aware, seem unpersuasive. And I find it hard to understand how belief in an all-good and all-powerful deity can survive in the face of it. Even if a theist supposes that the problem has a solution that we humans are unable to grasp, that would mean that God, who created us with the capacity to discover the laws of nature and find the world scientifically intelligible, has made us incapable, has made us incapable of finding the world morally intelligible. End quote. So why on earth would God intentionally cause us to hallucinate a problem here? 
like especially one that would lead human beings away from our relationship with him. If the world really is morally intelligible in reality, then that means that God is the author of confusion here. Why not make it so we can just tell that the world is morally intelligible if it is that way in reality? We wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Atheists would lose one of their better arguments. Many of us wouldn't have lost our faith if the world were morally coherent. So people are being led away from a relationship with God and sent to hell for an eternity, according to some Christians, because God chose to create the illusion that the world was morally unintelligible. So, according to Barna Group, atheism has doubled among Gen Z, and their most cited reason is the problem of evil. So, Gen Z is being led away from a relationship with God in droves, in large part because of God's choice to create or permit the kinds, degree, and distribution of suffering in our world. Okay, so my last line of evidence is, is divine silence during tragedies. Victims of tragedies often do not feel God's comforting presence. Many do, but many do not. In response to gratuitous suffering, theists often claim that God has morally justifying reasons for allowing gratuitous evil, but that God's reasons are unknown to us. So this third line of evidence also functions as a response to skeptical theism as well. Um, let's say you had a daughter who needed to go to the doctor to undergo some medical treatment. This medical treatment wasn't going to be pleasant, but there's a good reason for it. So this is essentially the situation that many theists believe about apparent tragedies. And, uh, you know, many of them use this analogy. I've actually heard Khaldun use this analogy. Um, there's some greater moral purpose, some justifying reason why God is allowing it to happen. We may not know what it is, but rest assured there's a reason. But, you know, if we embrace that analogy, you know, a good father would be there for his daughter in the medical scenario. Um, he would try to explain that there is a purpose, and he would make her understand if he could. God hasn't done that for us. But regardless, he would try to be a comforting presence. But many victims of tragedies don't feel God's comforting presence. Some do, and some don't. Um, and again, this fact is just much more likely on naturalism than on theism. So, in response to the existence of tragedies, theists will often invoke an unknown purpose or unknown moral reasons, but that doesn't affect this point. Shouldn't God be comforting victims of tragedy? Isn't that what a good father would do? Again, many feel his comforting presence in the midst of tragedies, but many do not. You know, you wouldn't just, um, you know, kick your daughter out of the car in front of the hospital and say good luck, but, you know, that appears to be the situation for some people. Um, okay, so to put this in focus, um, I've been defending the claim that the probability of these facts about suffering is quite high on the hypothesis of indifference, but the probability of these facts about suffering is quite low on the hypothesis of theism. So these facts about suffering in our world favor indifference over theism. Okay, so those three reasons were, just to reiterate, one, the biologically oriented distribution of pain and pleasure. Pain and pleasure are systematically correlated with the biological goals of survival and reproduction, not with moral goals. And if naturalism is true, this is unsurprising. Uh, if, the if theism is true, God would not make a morally random world or produce pain and pleasure without morally justifying reasons for doing so. Um, the chances that his reasons, if we say they exist, would basically always coincide with biological goals are slim. So it's a huge coincidence that naturalism doesn't need. The second line of evidence is gratuitous suffering. While God might permit suffering that served some higher moral purpose, there shouldn't be suffering that occurs for literally no reason. A good God doesn't want sentient creatures to endure 
purposeless suffering that is of no benefit to anyone, and an omnipotent God would be able to prevent it, yet gratuitous suffering exists. Three, divine silence during tragedies. Just as a father would comfort his daughter through uh, necessary suffering that she couldn't understand, God should be a comforting presence to his children when they're going through suffering that we can't understand. But many don't feel God's comforting presence in the midst of tragedy. While we would expect this to a near certainty to occur if God did not exist, it's rather surprising if God does exist. So, if you take the suffering of a child, and again, I'm not saying that no child would ever suffer if theism were true. Um, I'm claiming that sometimes children suffer for no reason, and uh, a lot of them don't feel God's comforting presence in their suffering. And what's more, their tragic suffering is utterly unmysterious if you take it as the product of blind, imperfect, natural processes, rather than occurring with the permission of an all-loving God. So, I'd like to quote um, Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, who said, I must say that most attempts to explain why God permits evil strike me as tepid, shallow, and ultimately frivolous, end quote. So I agree with Plantinga there, and I would take it a bit further. I don't think theism does a good job explaining why the world looks as it does. Atheism makes for a much better fit with the kinds, degree, and distribution of suffering we observe. I don't think these facts we've discussed would be facts if theism were true. So the best solution, I think, is to just cut the whole tangled kite string and say God doesn't exist. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emerson, for your opening statement. Um, we'll turn it to Kadun now, so whenever you want to get your screen pulled up there, um, we'll be looking forward to that, and I'll put your screen up, and we can get this thing going. I apologize for my internet. Um, for some reason, even though I'm at university, it decided to just be terrible. So uh, hopefully it all sticks out. Um, and Kadun, uh, whenever you're ready, feel free to give your opening statement. Okay, uh, let me stop the screen for a moment and just intro stop introduction here. Um, I want to share the screen a little bit, but can you take it off for a bit? Yes, I can take it off for a second and just let me know when you want the screen back on. Um, and yeah. yeah, all right, are we good? Okay, mm -hmm. all right, uh, let me begin here. Well, thank you for Emerson for that. I appreciate that. Um, your your comments and your insights there, things to deal with, and hopefully, uh, a little bit later, we will. On November 20, 2006, my own biological son died. He died in my arms. It was one of the darkest periods of my life. It was a difficult time. It was a time of um, uh, intellectual, spiritual, psychological depression. Um, I subsequently lost my wife as well through different circumstances. And just going through this, um, I had... I have been a believer or a believer in God for a number of years before that, but I had subliminally bought into the notion that God is some kind of cosmic uh, sugar daddy or some kind of cosmic jackpot, that if I do good works and I plug them into the machine of God, God is obligated to give me uh, health, wealth, and uh, prosperity. And that's just not the biblical position or theistic position of God, historically speaking. But I bought into it psychologically. And that's why I suffered through that existentially. And it was a difficult time for me. And I, I recognize that 
Um, this is just a, a micro of what others have gone through throughout history, such as the bombings in Syria, the Holocaust, um, the uh, uh, genocide throughout history, um, children suffering that Emerson mentioned. So this is a problem that's uh, throughout all history. All people suffer in one way or another. All people do, all groups, all religions, all the ideologies, specifically theists, because we believe God is good, and then how we can reconcile that with the problem of evil. So this is a problem for me that's not just intellectual, but it's also personal. And this is, and I'll, what I'll do here in the next few minutes is present or prepare to present or try to present some of the theistic uh, responses to that. At this point, I can start sharing my screen. Uh, I have a PowerPoint going up here. Um, so the why does God allow suffering and evil is a perpetual problem that theists have struggled with since the beginning. And it goes into the logical problem of evil. I know Emerson didn't go into it, but I'll do that just for the sake of uh, those who have not uh, had a background in it. So the problem of evil goes like this. It comes from Epicurus, a Greek philosopher, and many others have perpetuated on this. If God is omnipotent, all good, then he would defeat evil. If God is omnipotent, all powerful, he could defeat evil. If God is omniscient, that means all-knowing, then he knows about evil and knows how to defeat it and when. Ah, but evil is not defeated. Therefore, no such God exists. That, in, in a nutshell, is the logical problem of evil. Uh, taking into articulation what many people uh, believe and feel, uh, scholars have been able to put that into words. In order for us to do this properly, we first have to define what we mean by evil. So let me give an attempt here for that. This is... Um, the from St. Augustine, he said the following, evil is a privation or a corruption that exists in something that was originally good and perfect. Basically, evil is a deviation from the way things ought to be. Evil is a parasite that sucks off the lifeblood of goodness. Evil does not exist on its own as an ontologically real entity. It's more like a, um, darkness is the absence of light. Light exists, but darkness only exists when there's less light. So evil is that in that regard as a privation. Although there are some existential and real uh, properties of evil, uh, such as malevolence, torture, and things of that nature that have to be expanded on and not to be denied or ignored on a psychological or a legal perspective. So evil is a privation or a just a very... A, a deviation from the way things ought to be. So what I'll do here is I'll give you four points. Uh, one is I'll be addressing this in the free will defense. Secondarily, I'll be arguing that atheism is bankrupt against evil. Three, I'll argue that suffering is necessary for a full life. And four, I'll be using what's called the evidential or butterfly boomerang effect of evil. So allow me some time here and I'll go ahead and expand on all four of these. Free will, atheism being bankrupt, suffering is necessary for a full life. And finally, the butterfly or boomerang effect of evil, I take from Tim Keller's work. The logical problem of evil. As stated here, if God is omnibeneficent, he would defeat all evil. He, he could defeat all evil. He doesn't defeat evil because he knows about it. Therefore, God doesn't exist. Now, this argument here, as you can see, assumes a premise, a hidden premise. That premise is uh, perpetuated by St. Ott. 
Aquinas in his Summa Theologica. He says that since God is the highest good, he would not allow any evil to exist in his works unless his omnipotence and goodness were such as to bring about good even out of evil. This argument assumes or presumes some kind of arrogance or hubris because it assumes we know the hidden premise of why God does not or cannot stop evil. And furthermore, if this argument is actually logically true, if God is omnipotent and omniscient, then he does and may actually have knowledge for why he allows it. And since he's omnibeneficent, he does allow it only for a good possible reason. And that reason can be such as to bring about greater good out of even the greatest of evil. So I think there's an Achilles heel in the very logical problem of evil itself. And it's been addressed sufficiently throughout um, philosophical history in the last decade by Alvin Plantinga in his 1974 book, God, Freedom, and Evil, where he argued rigorously, using modal logic and other principles, that God, even though he's omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, cannot create good moral beings unless these, if these moral beings must let me repeat that, must follow him and must obey him, then they would not be good. They would be robotic or androids. Um, so in order for a moral being to be moral, he must have the ability to do evil or go against that which is good. That is speaking of a being who is not perfect, i.e. excluding God himself, of course. When God chooses to create, by definition, whatever he creates is not God, and that being itself would have freedom, and that freedom would be the freedom to choose. It is absolutely necessary for evil to be there if there is love. We want love, therefore we must have some kind of ability not to choose love. Second point, atheism is bankrupt in addressing evil. Uh, and this goes back to a lot of the great atheists of history like John Paul Sartre, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, Bertrand Russell and others have agreed that atheism itself does not provide an, um, an adequate answer to evil in an objective sense, because if there is no God, no absolute, absolute standard to judge everything by, then it is relativistic and skeptical positions run array. There is no way to address the problem of evil in a problem because it also contradicts itself. The atheist judges God as evil, but he uses a standard that's objective to say God is evil, but he denies the very standard from which he uses to object from it. <laughs> it's like cutting off your own, uh, cutting out your tongue when you're trying to speak because your tongue is the thing that actually speaks for you, or you're cutting off the, the branch that you're sitting on, the very standards of logic, ethics, uh, the very principles in um, mathematics uh, presuppose an objective order in the universe. And atheism assumes that and, and actually robs it from theism to, in order to justify its own existence, such as the very process of even using logic. Logic itself presupposes some kind of more uh, structure within the very re fabric of reality that's logically ordered. And you cannot have that unless you have a logician that put that in place. Uh, you can just have natural byproducts of a chance plus time plus matter creating logical order. Logical order is there, and atheism steals from that in order to justify its arguments against evil, which it doesn't believe it exists on an objective level, but nevertheless claims God is evil for doing it. There's a contradiction in the very system itself. The existence of moral values and duties implies the existence of an ultimate moral law maker. And I take my argument from one of the greatest philosophers uh, who ever lived, a wonderful uh, work uh, by him, Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant did an incredible way of addressing the problem of evil using the ultimate moral lawmaker as a justification for that. And um, this actually helped me 
in a um, and in an existential or more emotional level. When I went through my own loss of my own son and my own family, um, I needed more than just an intellectual answer. I needed more than just moral values or moral books or eightfold path or ten commandments or something to that effect. I needed someone. I needed to know that I was what's happening is not purposeless, meaningless. Um, and Frederick Nietzsche said that the best. Anyone can deal with any what in life as long as they have a why. And I had a why. I had an intellectual, rigorous school of thought called apologetics that I built my intellectual um, capital on and theology and science and psychology and other areas that provided a rational grounds for believing there's more than life than just a moral uh, chaos. There's actually a moral lawmaker. And that helped me on a deep level. Immanuel Kant, in his book, The Critique of Practical Reason, argued that in order for there to be good in the universe, there must be a design plan for it to be so. Although Immanuel Kant argued you cannot use reason to arrive at the existence of God, you cannot even arrive at reason itself without presupposing the existence of God itself or uh, himself. Excuse me. In order to bring about divine justice in the universe, whoever it is that created the universe and bring about moral justice and goodness must himself be able to judge wisely among all the different defendants in front of him. In order to do that, he must be infinitely wise. He must be infinitely powerful enough to bring about the goodness and knowledgeable enough to be able to do it in a way that's transcendent. Only God has that in his resume. Immanuel Kant presupposed the existence of God for any moral objective value and goodness to exist in the universe. Atheism admit, or atheists admit that evil is real. Racism and poverty, slavery, rape, murder are real, as Emerson did in his presentation. But he cannot account for these in an objective way. He may account for them in a subjective way, or he may postulate evolutionary psychology to do it. But in an um, objective sense, these things don't exist. They're nothing more than mere poetry. But we do know that slavery, murder, and poverty are evil. Ah, so they're more than poetry. But on what account on atheism? And I don't think he has one, or they have one. Uh, point three, suffering is necessary for a full life. Leibniz and uh, John Hick in his book, God, Love, God, and uh, Evil and the God of Love, and Irenaeus, the great uh, Christian uh, father of the church, argued very well that God created the world in such a way that the agents he created, instead of being pain-free and stress-free in a paradistic state long-term, rather, they're in a state of um, moral conditioning, and this conditioning creates more people who are more moral, more just, more kind, more compassionate. And I know I became more kind, more compassionate after I went through the hell I went through on a, on a deep level. Um, and that actually creates moral beings. I mean, think for yourself, guys. Think of people you know who have gone through their own personal hells. These people are more, more robust, moral people than anyone else. And John Hick argued that very well. In the, um, in the movie Gandhi, which I strongly recommend to you, by uh, the actor was Ben Kingsley, one of my favorites. I think he's actually one of the best actors who ever lived. Um, it's a wonderful movie about a remarkable character, a remarkable figure. And uh, June 7, 1893, Mahatma Gandhi, or the great soul, was forcibly removed from a whites-only carriage on a train in India for not obeying the laws that segregated each carriage according to race. Gandhi was a practicing young lawyer at the time, and he was told that no lawyers can possibly be 
colored? And he said, no, it's logical. He told the train conductor, it follows logically that if I'm colored and I am a lawyer, then there is one that does exist. <laughs> and they told him, you can't possibly have a first class seat. He, he said, no, here's my ticket. Again, I prove your hypothesis wrong, dear sir. And little Gandhi was thrown off the train. That event altered his life. He became, at that point, a social activist. He became uh, uh, somebody who fought against the British mandates and rules um, against the Indian people and against some of the practices that were done there during the time, um, becoming a strong moral advocate for uh, objective morality. Gandhi is an example of suffering and how suffering is necessary for people to rise up and become better people. Gandhi is just one of millions. Joseph Campbell in his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, illustrates this brilliantly. Uh, he argues that every hero in every story in every mythology, whether you're talking about the Iliad and the Odyssey, whether you're talking about Marvel, the Marvel movies, which are some of my favorite, or whether you're talking about historical people like Winston Churchill or Augustine or Martin Luther or Martin Luther King, they suffered. And through that suffering, they went through the... Um, a period, uh, a cycle. And here's how he puts a cycle. Every hero goes through something similar to this. They have a calling on their life or a, an event happens that causes them to go through a threshold. That threshold goes through challenges and they go through an abyss of suffering, um, uh, uh, bankruptcy, sometimes a form of death. And uh, every hero comes out of that stronger, better, and is able to address their world in a better way. This is necessary for moral growth and development. Let me pause for a moment and say this only addresses evil on that level. It doesn't address evil like children suffering in a cancer ward or people going through um, pain and suffering at a level where there doesn't seem to be, like Emerson pointed out, horrendous or gratuitous evil. This addresses the vast other types of evil that, address, that happen in the world, which is the majority. Um, but just to understand that suffering is necessary for moral growth, I don't think it's possible otherwise. Finally, I'm coming down here to the end, starting to land my plane. <laughs> um, well, I'm going to have a conclusion also at the end of this. But anyway, the evidential uh, argument or the butterfly effect. Okay. So the logical argument from evil says that God cannot possibly exist because evil exists. And I've shown that, no, it's possible that God can exist with evil. Um, in the scientific realm of chaos theory, there's something called the butterfly effect, which says that a butterfly's flapping of its wings in China would be magnified through a ripple effect as to determine the path of a hurricane in South Pacific. Yet no one would be able to calculate and predict the actual effects of the butterfly's flight. We cannot know with accuracy the effect of removing certain evils, such as maybe you uh, hitting your thumb on a hammer in the morning and that causes you pain, causing you to miss uh, work for about two minutes in the morning. That two minutes could have altered a... Um, a car accident that could have ended somebody's life, that could have changed the trajectory of the president for a certain country in two to 300 years from now. Small events can alter things forever. We cannot possibly know with our evident, uh, limited knowledge what that is. So the evidential or the uh, argument from horrendous evil argues that there's evil in such a way that God can't possibly have a reason for it, or it's such a it's so great that we can't possibly make sense of it. And I'm arguing, no, that we can make sense of it, if we understand that God may have reasons beyond our knowledge, and just because we alter one part of that, we can't possibly expect the universe to remain the same. Furthermore, there's a um, another part to that. 
It's called the evidential problem of evil, or the uh, boomerang effect. Basically, this is the following. In being upset with God about evil, as I was, I was really upset um, that I lost my family, my son. Um, I have presupposed or smuggled in um, a, a thesis that says God is morally wrong for doing this. But where do I get this idea of wrong, as C.S. Lewis said? When I see a crooked line, I can't possibly know it's crooked unless I have an idea of a straight line. That straight line is an objective standard that Aquinas talked about in his five ways. The awareness of moral evil in the world is actually an argument for the existence of God, not against it. Unless we allow the reality to be uh, ultimate reality to be moral, we cannot morally condemn it. We cannot assume morality on which to judge God unless, unless God and his morality exist. If you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. But what you end up with is a problem of how do you justify this God in that. You can't even talk about justice without standing inside a theistic framework or evil without assuming what you're trying to deny. So it comes back on you as a butterfly effect. It says you can't alter one part of it without altering all of it. And the boomerang effect, as soon as you deny evil, the argument comes back upon you to justify why you think denying evil is itself uh, wrong or why evil is wrong because you're assuming evil when you're denying it at the same time. Um, so evil itself is evidence that there is something good in the universe. We just have to try to trust and try to figure out how that works in our own lives. And I think instead of spending your life trying to figure out the answer to why questions, better to answer the answer of what questions. What can I do about the evil in my life or the evil in the world? How has God equipped me best to deal with it? Rather than spending my life trying to figure out why, I could try to figure out what to do with it. Of course, philosophers go back and forth on the why one. And in conclusion, at this point, you may ask me, all right, Swice, what's the answer to the problem of evil? And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but I don't have a, a specific answer to all the evils. I don't think anybody would, and I would say be careful of anybody who does. I don't know and understand why God let my son die, why he allows children to suffer and starve every day, why there's high poverty rates at high levels and racism and genetic cleansing and, and sexual slavery. I don't know. One minute. We cannot, thank you, we cannot nail God down as if he is a mathematical formula and a complex construction of trying to get an answer to God of why he allows evil. But wait a minute, guys, we did nail God down. In the Christian theistic framework, we nailed God down on a cross. And that cross, Jesus of Nazareth, took upon himself the suffering of the life of all humanity as a vicarious suffering for that and says, because I know you suffer, I can understand how it feels. You can trust me. One day I will come and right all the wrongs there have ever been. When I held my little son's body and he died, I, I said to him, Enoch, one day I will see you. One day I will walk on streets of gold with you. And I, the reason I believe that is not because of some kind of poetic utterance, but because I fundamentally believe that Jesus of Nazareth came to the earth as the incarnation of God, suffered, died, and rose from the dead. And because he rose, I believe I will rise too, and I will see my son again as well. And I think that's the hope for all mankind. It gives me the impetus and the reason to be moral and to help others around me to become better, because I believe ultimately good will triumph over evil. Thank you. Well, awesome. Thank you so much, Kaldun, um, for your presentation and sharing your screen. Right now, we're going to go to 10-minute rebuttals. Um, so, Emerson, whenever you're ready, I'll start my timer. Um, we'll get going. All right, cool. Brought up the free will defense. And, you know, yes, free will is good. But the thing is, you know, free will is only good to an extent. You know, like we intervene when people abuse their free will. 
Um, if someone's, you know, beating an old couple on the side of the street, we don't say, you know, well, they're exercising their libertarian free will. So I guess I won't intervene. Um, we intervene when people abuse their free will. Uh, the second point is that the three arguments I made survive the free will defense. Um, free will doesn't um, address anything that I um, mentioned about the biological roles of pain and pleasure. Um, you know, like that's an argument about the distribution of suffering in our world. So, you know, pain and pleasure are correlated with adaptation. Um, so if God has these morally justifying reasons, um, it's quite a coincidence that they just happen to pretty much always coincide with the predictions of evolutionary biology. So free will doesn't do anything against that argument. Um, and so for the, uh, argue, the evidential argument from gratuitous suffering, um, yeah, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, I'm not making the logical argument. So, you know, I'm allowing for the possibility of suffering. Um, you know, which was your, your third point that, um, suffering is necessary to live a, uh, meaningful life and for moral growth. Um, so the arguments I presented actually allow for that. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with the, uh, with the biological roles of pain and pleasure, the gratuitous suffering that doesn't contribute to moral growth or anything. Um, you know, soul destroying evils instead of soul building evils. Um, and the last argument about divine silence during tragedies, um, also, you know, just free will doesn't have anything to uh, to say about that. So, yeah, and, and furthermore, my, my arguments are, are abductive. You know, they're in, inference of the best explanation, you know, or they're probabilistic. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not presenting the logical, the logical argument. So free will actually doesn't um, weaken my case in the slightest. Um, I think your second point was that, was basically the moral argument you said, um, you know, if there's a way that things ought to be, then there's a God, you know, like I have no ability to, to present the problem of evil unless I'm a theist. Um, okay, so if I present an argument from evil and you say, well, evil actually proves God because only God can ground concepts like good and evil, that's A, not true, and B, a non sequitur. Um, the problem of evil is sort of like, you can think of it like an internal problem for theism. Like I'm stepping into your shoes. Like, I'm not a moral nihilist, but I could be, and I could still make this argument. Um, you know, you're telling me that there's a being with the power and the inclination to prevent suffering that serves no higher purpose. And yet that seems to exist. You know, you're telling me the world is not morally random. So I can present an argument from evil without accepting your particular moral theory. Um, so that's why it's just a non sequitur. But it's also just not true um, that only God can ground concepts like good and evil. Um, we shouldn't make the mistake of conflating moral realism on the one hand and theism. So the idea that there's a fact of the matter about right and wrong, or that morality is real in some important sense, is fully compatible with atheism. And according to Phil Papers, the majority of atheist philosophers are moral realists. Um, and I would also add that even if we grant the existence of objective moral values, it doesn't help because, you know, if moral, the, the, the idea that if moral realism is true, then God exists is groundless. Um, it's not true that only God could ground the objectivity of ethics. And, you know, per the Euthyphro dilemma, we have some reason to think that there's no way that God could ground moral truths. 
Um, so that premise, you know, if moral realism is true, then God exists, um, is a, is, you know, deeply flawed. But, uh, yeah, so I, I can present the, uh, argument from evil, even if I was a nihilist, which I'm not. Um, and, you know, it's not true that if you're an atheist, you have to be a moral nihilist, but even if you were, you could still make this argument. Um, okay, I think your third point was suffering is necessary for, uh, you know, for moral growth and for a meaningful life. You know, like, that's definitely true in our world. Um, you know, and the people who write the most eloquently about this are atheists, like Nietzsche, who you quoted. Um, now, first of all, I'm, you know, I'm tempted to point out that, you know, things didn't have to be that way. But I think just to play it safe, I'll just point out that, you know, my, um, the three arguments that I laid out, you know, allow for that truth, you know, that suffering is necessary for a, for moral growth. But that doesn't mean that there should be totally unnecessary suffering, which, you know, appears to exist. There appears to be gratuitous suffering. And, you know, it doesn't change the fact that the distribution of suffering in our world appears to be organized by the utterly amoral force of natural selection. Um, yeah, and it doesn't change the fact that many don't feel God's comforting presence in the midst of uh, the tragedies that they're going through. You know, some do, but some don't. Um, so your last point was, uh, you know, basically skeptical theism, the uh, butterfly effect uh, point. So skeptical theism, so here's one reason why skeptical theism bothers me. I already mentioned it, but it's possible with, with it's compatible with any possible set of observations. So no matter what was going on, you could still say, hey, maybe this is going to lead to some kind of greater good. You know, like it's that's why I say it's a form of radical skepticism. It's like the idea that we're in the matrix because there's just nothing you could observe that could ever rule that out, which I think is a red flag. You know, like I said, we could literally be in hell and the skeptical theist could still make that point. Um, that, you know, we're not in the same epistemic position as God, you know, maybe this is leading to some kind of greater good. Um, but again, what you're essentially saying here is that the, uh, the problem of evil as I'm presenting it is only an apparent problem. You know, there is a solution to the problem of evil that we can't understand. The thing is, if that's true, then God is the author of confusion here. The world isn't morally intelligible to us because of his choice to make it that way. And the confusion there is multiplied, I think, because, you know, many have lost their faith as a result of the problem of evil. And according to many Christians, are burning in hell over their loss of faith. So if God wants a relationship with us, I'm not sure why he's creating this illusion that the world is morally unintelligible. As I mentioned, atheism has doubled among Gen Z, according to Barna Group, and their most cited reason for their atheism is the problem of evil. Um... I also didn't hear a response to um, my one of the points I mentioned against skeptical theism, which is just phenomenal conservatism. We're justified in thinking that the world is as it seems in the absence of defeaters. Saying that, you know, it's arrogant to think there is no defeater is not the same thing as actually offering a, a theodicy. Um, yeah. I guess, I don't know how much time I have left, but... Um, you have two minutes left. Two minutes. Okay. So I want to bring up one more objection to that whole, uh, you know, butterfly effect point. So, um, 
I think that that leads to a sort of moral paralysis where you can't, you, you've sort of given up your moral intuitions. You've given up your ability to judge whether suffering is gratuitous. You're saying that, you know, it's, it's wrong of us to think that anything is ever going on that isn't like the, the medical scenario. You know, when you've got someone being given a, a you know, a, a shot that they don't want to have or something. Well, you know, if that's the case, then intervening in suffering, you know, would be as foolish as like leaping in front of a child who's about to get a vaccine because they're afraid of needles or something. You know, like if, if suffering is guaranteed to lead to some kind of greater good, if it occurs, one minute, then I don't see why you would change the world. So, or, uh, you know, you know, try to intervene. So, um, you know, if we're so ignorant of good and evil that we're in no position to assess whether suffering is actually pointless then, you know, if we see something terrible about to happen, you know, like um, an infant crawling into traffic or something, then, you know, ordinarily we would come to the child's rescue. But the thing is, like, if that had happened, you know, after the fact, then you would say, well, you know, or let me just quote William Lane Craig here. Uh, the brutal murder of an innocent man or a child's dying of leukemia could produce a sort of ripple effect through history, such that God's morally sufficient reason for permitting it might not emerge until centuries later and perhaps in another land. When you think of God's providence of the whole of history, I think you can see how hopeless it is for limited observers, you know, so on and so forth. So the the problem there is that, you know, it, it that does lead to a sort of moral paralysis where I could, I could say that, you know, as I stop you from, you know, you're about to go help the infant crawling into traffic and I, I stop you and I quote William Lane Craig to you. Um, that seems to be a kind of implication of accepting skeptical theism is this sort of moral paralysis. But um, I think I'll have to leave it there. Yes. Um, thank you so much for your rebuttal, Emerson. And I apologize, everyone, for me zoning in and out here throughout this debate. I'm at university, but for some reason, my internet decided to die today. Um, so maybe that's a problem of evil we need to talk about. Um, but we'll give that to Caldoon, um for your rebuttal. You'll have 10 minutes whenever you want to get started. The light here, I'm kind of, for some reason, my light is cutting in and out. But all right, hopefully uh, you can see me here. All right, well, um, uh, Emerson, thank you for your rebuttal and your your thoughts here. I, I I'm trying to ground what you're saying, but you are in in a position that you're assuming certain things that you're trying to uh, um, deal with. For example, in trying to present an argument against the position that I'm presenting, which I think is fair for you to be able to do, you are assuming there's such a thing as logic. And when you assume there's such a thing as logic, you are assuming by default that the universe is logically ordered or should be ordered in such a way that we can understand it in a chronological fashion that requires a thinking process of critical analysis. But that such a thing cannot exist on an atheistic worldview because atheism does not assume a thinking process behind the universe or a thinking mind or some kind of um, source to allow logic to even exist. But you're using logic in order to judge my logic, which you somehow ground, but you have no ground for it. So that's my first point and the very presupposition of the very position that you're even arguing for. Secondarily, you're assuming an ethical framework, which you deny at one level. You say you could be a moral nihilist and do that. I just don't see how you could do that. On an objective level, on a subjective level, you can. Um, furthermore, the, the issue you brought up on the... Uh, Jumping in front of a child to save him from uh, oncoming traffic, of course, makes sense. You want to do that. And this is a struggle for many of us in the theistic framework to try to make sense of that. And I grant you that. It is a problem. Um, 
theists don't have an answer on a specific level of why specific instances of evil happen, um, such as uh, rape, murder, uh, child trafficking, and things of that nature that happen on a daily basis, or the cancer wards that are full of children. We don't have specific answers, neither do we even assume that there are. But we have a general answer to help deal with the question, and that's where I'm trying to address it. I don't have a specific reason why God allowed my little boy to die and suffer and my family to go through what it did. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't have a general perspective that gives me a framework for understanding that and gives me purpose and meaning through it. Um, so your arguments that you present seem to be dealing with specific instances of evil, which uh, you're, you're claiming theists should have an answer for. I don't think any of us even presume to even have an answer to those. Um, and I struggle with it myself, just, just, just FYI. Um, I, I don't know what those are. But I know generally, and that helps me. Uh, Pascal said this uh, one point, and I thought it was important to indicate that. Uh, Pascal indicated that there is enough light in the world and enough light in the uh, cosmos and enough light in our knowledge and our understanding for those of us who truly seek the truth to be able to find it, and enough darkness for those of us who don't want to, to embrace that as well. I think there's something to be said about that. Uh, confirmation bias is huge. If I really believe God is there and exists, and when I pray and suddenly there's an answer to prayer, I can automatically assume God healed my son or my mom or whatever it was, right? Uh, even though God may not have done it. Although I'll need independent evidence to show that it actually was God that did it or some kind of spiritual reality that did it. Uh, in that regard. Um, so I think the same can be said about atheism or skepticism. Um, when you don't want to believe something or you have a presupposition against it, um, it's easy to find faults in it and try to find ways around it. So with that said, um, we'll go on. The free will defense. Yes, I see you. Um, your arguments don't specifically deal with that one, and I see you're well-read about it, so I commend you on that. Uh, the free will issue is not um, one that you brought up and dealt with, so I'll kind of move beyond it. You talked about the role, the biological distribution of pain and pleasure seem to be in line with more evolutionary hypothesis or a naturalistic one than a theistic one. I find that interesting, maybe in a naturalistic perspective toward the animal kingdom. But if you look at the world of men, the history of mankind, the history of Rome, uh, Babylon, uh, Russia, United States, Prussia, uh, the Middle East, what you find is an interesting correlation, not a, a disjunction between those who do vile and evil and wickedness and, uh, and crush their, their fellow man, especially the minority groups. Sooner or later, there's an uprising or a rising against, like the apartheid in South Africa, for that nature, example, where people rise up against evil at a systemic level and start to slowly change that. Although it may take generations, it may take time, but there is a correlation between constantly doing evil to your fellow man and having that come back upon you. So I can't constantly live a life of a mafia hitman, for example, and expect to be safe from other hitmen who may be hired to take me out because I have knowledge, etc. I think sooner or later, once you start violating the moral law and the moral order, sooner or later the moral order comes down crashing upon you. I think there's a reason for that, and there's a, there's a presupposition for that because there's a moral lawgiver who made it that way. So I think there is a correlation between what is evil and morally good and the distribution of it in the human kingdom, that is, not necessarily in the, um, the animal kingdom per se. Let's see if I can fix my light pattern here uh, if I can, but maybe we'll do that a little bit. Uh, you talked about uh, moral realism and moral theism. Let's see, morality is real. You say you do grant that. You mentioned the euthyphro dilemma. Uh, many people don't know what that is, and I, I don't know if I have enough time to get into it. But basically it's saying that um, you can't really hold that God 
and morality are equal because God can easily have arbitrarily made what is good evil and what is evil good. Uh, what level do we judge it at? We need an independent standard of even God to judge it. Um, I, I think that's that's a, um, a criticism that is just, and I think it's, it holds water. I think it's a problem. Uh, however, um, it doesn't hold uh, as much of a problem as you think it does because you turn the question around as a boomerang effect right back at you. Because what, what would I rather have, a morally nihilistic a black hole in the center of the universe? Is that the system of morals that I want to embrace? Or do I want to embrace a different moral system? And at the end of the day, I have to weigh out external evidence, such as the design argument, the ontological argument, the cosmological argument, the design, the, uh, the intricacies of the, um, the consciousness of availability of our lifehood, of understanding what's beyond our life, that's beyond ourselves as a transcendent perspective, leads us to believe that there's more to life than just the natural world. So I think external arguments can justify a theistic framework rather than a, an atheistic one in that regard. And, um, and the standard for morality would have to be at a, some kind of final cause or final desk or the supreme court of the universe. If there isn't one, then it does go back and forth to some kind of relativism. You talked about there have people who died slowly in earthquakes, and um, that breaks my heart. And that is a problem for theism, it is. But let me emphasize this point, and I think it needs to be hammered home. The humanitarian work of the Christian church in specific has done more good for the human race than any other institution and all the others combined. Humanitarian work, education, science, psychology, art, music, Christianity has contributed to the world in positive ways and tried to alleviate suffering being the hands and feet of Jesus as he commanded us to be. So there is a, a practical application to that. Uh, we haven't been able to reach everyone, of course, and then the question goes back on a theistic perspective, a theistic level, why God would allow that on a deep level, and I'm not um, preview to that. Um, I have to, uh, at this point, plead ignorance. There's a lot more to be said there about that, but I'll pause and open up for some kind of discussion on it. I'll stop there. And let me see if I can fix my light in the meantime. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Um, so what we are going to do now, um, we're going to fix it. Is we're going to go to about 20 minutes of live discussion here. Um, so just a short period here where they can just kind of talk. There's obviously a lot of points covered here. Um, and then we will have about five, 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. So if you have any questions, we'll hit a couple on our way out. I'll try to find the ones that are most relevant to where the discussion takes us. Um, but if you're ready, the lighting looks good. Um, if you better? The timer for 20 minutes and you guys can take this uh, wherever you guys see fitting. Hey, I'm with you in the uh, horrible lighting club, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not usually on camera. All right. Um, okay, well... I mean, it sounds like you're conceding a lot of what I'm saying. Like, you keep saying, like, yeah, I don't know why that happens. <laughs> and it's like, well, uh, I mean, isn't the idea, like, is this stuff evidence against God? And it sounds like you're agreeing with me on some level that it is. At one level, it is. But if I look at it, Emerson, independently of all other things, like, for example, the design of the universe, the very detail of the DNA molecule, which is incredible. The incredible complexity of that staggers the mind. Maybe Francis Crick talked about that. Francis Collins recently in his work on the DNA sequencing. Um, the evidence of design in the universe indicates to me that there's a designer. So there are other external factors that help me to believe in some kind of um, uh, 
transcendent, intelligent, omnipotent, omniscient source beyond all that. So it's not just this one point. So it's a lot more than that. So that helps ground that for me. It's not just an independent thing of just seeing just one argument and that's it. I don't believe it. Um, and furthermore, there's something else. Um, uh, you talked about this in your work as well. Uh, religious epistemology deals with experience. Many of people within the theistic framework have claimed to have a theophany or Christophany of God, where they have that experience. And there's no denying that experience and the reality of it. Um, so that's on a deep personal level. It's not a theological argument per se that can present it to others, but it's more of an internal argument of an internal phenomenological reality uh, for me. So there's a lot more to that, but that's, that's, that's a short, brief response. So, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I'm totally happy to to grant that, that like, you know, you have other arguments that lead you to, you know, believe in God. But, um, you know, the question is, like, if it weren't for those arguments, would you have to reject theism because of the argument from evil? No, because although um, evil is a thorn in the side of theists, uh, it's the one major problem that we have to deal with. Atheism has all the others to deal with. I can think of a couple other problems. I'm sure there's, there's a few others. I know you mentioned the, um, the confusion problem, biblical issues, and that things of their nature. Right. I, I understand those. But that's the major one, I think, that um, many people struggle with on a deep level. Um, so, no, I mean, it would have to be a whole robust picture to eliminate that. And um, as C.S. Lewis would have said, it's not just I believe in God to make sense of the world. It's um, making sense of the world only makes sense because I believe in God. Um, on that deep level. Okay. Um, I'm still a little bit confused about what your position is with regards to, you know, evil. Cause it sounds like, it, like it sounds kind of like you're saying at some points, like, yeah, this is evidence against God, but it's outweighed by other concerns. Like you have these other problems with atheism. Like you think that atheists have no way of grounding objective moral values or like logic and, uh, you know, you've got these other arguments for theism. Um, so is that your position, though, that like that just, again, all else held equal that, you know, gratuitous evil and these other lines of evidence I've mentioned, like that this is actually good evidence against God's existence? I don't think so. No, because on a theistic framework, um, even then, you would have to deal with um, the suffering, uh, the vicarious suffering of Christ. You know, Christ is thrown in there as a, as a paradigm that's different than the regular theistic perspective, where God walks into the world and becomes one of us and suffers and takes on uh, the pain himself of, uh, of, of others. And that pain shows that God is not immune to that, but God also takes that upon himself. So I think um, on the theistic framework and historical reality of Jesus of Nazareth as a real individual, as a real person, indicates to me that it's more than just a theoretical issue, it's a historical one. And um, the reality of Jesus, his life, his work, his resurrection, his ethics, and, his, and the result of his um, creating a society called the church, which influenced the world for the better, although it has a serious problems, and I got to admit those. Um, but the benefits of that and the, the reality of that is something I can't deny. Okay. Um, I guess I just want to dig down a little bit on on your point about um evil and how even presenting this argument assumes uh, some kind of moral objectivity or moral realism and further that only theism can ground um moral realism so 
you you believe that there is a god with the power and inclination to prevent gratuitous evil, right? Yes. And there appears to be gratuitous evil or gratuitous suffering, we could say. Again, appears. Appears. Okay. So, yeah, I mean that is uh that that's kind of, you know, the argument that's that's being made. You don't have to take any position on moral realism to point out that there's like a sort of internal problem here with saying that on the one hand, gratuitous suffering appears to exist, and on the other hand, there's this being with the power and inclination to get rid of that thing. You don't have to be a moral realist to present that argument. No, but you're using uh, moral realistic language, moral realistic ontology and epistemology to ground the argument itself. And I say you don't have a ground to stand on on that. Because within uh, my very I'm system itself... In your shoes. I'm like taking... I'm standing in your shoes, like saying like... You know, from the perspective of theism, this is a problem. Right. But I got you. Yeah, from my own perspective. But from if you're standing in my shoes, then you would see that we have these other arguments that deal with this problem on a, on a deep level. Um, it, it deals with the issue of the moral growth factor of society, the issue of free will, uh, the, the concept of... Um, uh, knowledge that good, greater good would come from some evils that are there that are perpetuated upon us that we don't have understanding of right now at this time, the um, the life and death and resurrection of Christ as a, um, um, a way to deal with suffering in a deep level that we can take upon ourselves and help others to do that with. So within my own framework, if you were to ground yourself in that framework, then you would grasp that part. If I may turn, ma'am, if I may turn the question around on you here, um, Emerson, let me ask you, um, how... how on your own worldview, I know you used to come from um, a family or a believing family, and you, you think you have a great relationship with your family. Is, is that right? You have mm-hmm. it? That's great. Um, but on what f- basis do you have for holding them as individuals of dignity and individuals of moral worth um, if they're nothing more than or just the biological outpourings and the emergence of properties, chance plus time plus matter, that will, sooner or later will just move on into the chaos of the universe? At what point do you grant your sister, your family, or your father, etc.? Moral dignity and moral worth. Uh, where do you hold that? Well, you know, I'm not sure that my like meta ethical position is strictly relevant to those um, more like on the ground issues. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, you know, I know a couple moral nihilists, and you know, you could—they're pretty chill people. Um, <laughs> it's the uh, it's the moral realists you got to look out for. But um, no, I mean, uh, I'm sort of agnostic on some of these like moral questions. I mean, not the ones that you just mentioned <laughs> about like the value of my, uh, the intrinsic value of like, you know, my family and that sort of thing. Um, but sort of these like broader, like, uh, like issues in moral philosophy, I just don't think are, are super relevant to, um, to those issues. Um, but I will say that, uh, you know, so I'm saying I, I don't really take any strong position on like, you know, meta ethical theories or normative theories. Um, but I still don't think that, uh, you know, we should make that mistake of, of conflating theism with moral realism, where you think that the only way that human life could have dignity is if you believe in God or something. Um, the, I mean, there are two problems with that. The first problem is that you can be a moral realist and an atheist. And in fact, like most atheist philosophers are moral realists. Um, so I, I, I can just briefly sketch out like one position that's, that's sort of popular. I, I think, I don't know how many people hold to it, but I, th- I think it's popular among atheist philosophers called moral non-naturalism. So there are moral facts that exist independently of human beings that ground morality on this view. There's, you know, 
theoretically primitive goodness, you know, irreducibly normative truths. Um, but the point is that, you know, atheism is compatible with moral realism in many forms. This is just one form that, you know, I just like very, very briefly sketched out that's fairly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first point is that there are, you know, extremely robust, m- you know, moral realist theories that are perfectly compatible with atheism. So it's not true that only God can ground things like, you know, the intrinsic moral worth of, uh, of human beings. Um, but the second point that I mentioned was, you know, the euthyphro dilemma. So like, even if we grant that, you know, morality is real and objective in some sense, um, as most atheists do, um, it doesn't help because it's groundless to think that only God could, uh, or sorry, that, um, that God could ground the, uh, you know, it's not so straightforward as like, okay, I believe in God, so there's no more problems. Like, and that's why I brought up the euthyphro dilemma. Like, um, there's the reasons to think that it's problematic to think that God could ground um, moral truths as well, because, you know, if God had reasons for, you know, uh, issuing the commands that he does, or, or if there is some sort of reason that his nature is the way that it is instead of some other way, then atheists can help themselves to those reasons as well. And if there aren't reasons, then it's just totally arbitrary. You know, so um, it's not totally clear to me how God grounds morality um, when you've got that problem where it's like either God has moral reasons or he doesn't have moral reasons. Either way, it doesn't help you. Let me um, let me try to bring this as, a, as an analogy here. Or sorry, um, the old old one is told of a, a group of scientists who gathered together to try to make uh, another being or make another life uh, form from nothing. Uh, ex, uh, ex, ex nihilo is the, the term, and they say, "God, we we don't really don't need you. We would like to create our own form of life." And of course, the scientist begins to pick up the dirt to start the process, and God says, "Stop. Use your own dirt." Uh, but I want, use your own structures, use your own gravity, use your, you're borrowing so much from theism to even ground your position. It's so you don't think there would be a, a concept of good and evil? There, there wouldn't be like, like morality is 100% dependent on theism. It does not come from human beings on your view. No, no, no. I'm, I, I'm not saying that morality, uh, theoretically speaking, cannot be um, grounded in, in something beyond theism. I think it can be like Platonic, the Platonic sense of a good. Of a, of a good. Um, there's also one in, in pantheism as well. Uh, that's theoretically possible. I have to grant that as a philosopher. I have to grant that as possible. Um, however, I think the best explanation for a moral system is to assume a moral law, to assume persons. And that is grounded in a personage. And that personage would have to be theistic rather than pantheistic, or uh, atheistic. So um, that's why I say it's better. I think it's grounded better in theistic framework or specifically Christian framework in my perspective. Um, But it is theoretically possible to have a platonic set of moral laws like um, in in Taoistic philosophy or modern terms, uh, Star Wars type of force, right? Good and evil in in the universe. But even these assume some kind of moral system where good is punished. Uh, rewarded and bad is punished. Um, even then, we assume it uh, when we do that. And I think um, I don't think you can have a grounding for it unless you take it from the very position you're trying to take uh, critique. 
So it, it is possible to ground morality outside God, or, or it isn't? I think it is possible theoretically, because a lot of philosophers, as you indicated, well, have tried true. to do that. I just don't think the arguments given are better than the ones given by the theists. I think they're more practical or more real because they ground it in a person, and morality presupposes persons, not some kind of ideological force that just kind of grounds a moral system. Because not only do you have morality on a, on a moral, real, a moral, moralistic system or real morality or uh, moral realism, you also have not just values, you also have duties and responsibilities, okay? So if I want to do something evil to my neighbor and hide the evidence, whether, no matter how horrendous that is, I not only have a moral obligation to do the right, but I also have a duty to do it because there will be consequences. I think the theistic framework of an ultimate judgment grants that for us. Uh, the Roman soldier who kills a peasant in, let's uh, say, 30 AD and hides his body and kills his family and burns them and hides all the evidence, thinks he got away with that. Um, or uh, Eric uh, Dillon and Kiebold, the, the two kids in Columbine who did what they did on, on April 20, the Hitler's birthday, uh, thought they got away with this. And, and if atheism on your position is true, then they technically got away with murder. But if moral duties in, um, are, are real and they're grounded in some kind of consequence at the end of the day, then no, they're not getting away with anything. Sooner or later, justice will be done, as Immanuel Kant argued well, and uh, evil will be righted. And I think that brings um, a robust sense of meaning and purpose to all of us when we try to do good rather than evil in our own lives. Um, I could easily cheat as many people as I can to get ahead in life because this is all there is. But ultimately, I'm responsible to something greater than myself. And Dostoevsky argued that well. Um, that helps uh, ground that uh, rather than in my own system or my own belief system or my own society. Well, um, I think that you conceded my, my point right at the beginning there, where you said that it is possible to ground morality, um, you know, outside of, outside of theism. Yes. Um, well, there's a difference between um, what's possible and what is plausible. And I think it's possible that the president could come into my home right now. It's very much possible he can arrive right now with the Secret Service, although it's not very plausible <laughs> that could happen. Yeah. I um, think moral non-naturalism is more plausible than that, though. <laughs> I, I, anyway, but, but, um, maybe Trump will show up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's more plausible. Well, um, I mean, I'm happy to move to a Q&A. I can't see the chat right now, but um, I'm... I, um, is there yeah, I'm open for that. Sure. Yeah, we can go to um, Q&A. There's a lot of comments, but I couldn't find too many questions. Um, so I'll give people a moment. But I do. I wrote up I wrote up a couple questions for each of you. Um, something that's just kind of I thought of um, that wasn't necessarily hit on the discussion, which would be interesting. So I'll just start off with um, Kadun. Um, one of the points that Emerson brought up was this idea of animal suffering and you have, you have like evolutionary evil and such. Um, and I think a lot of the conversation was focused on like human evil and such and things that like humans will experience. So what would you think about with regards to like the problem of like animal suffering and um, creatures um, dealing with like evil and such? It is a difficult one. I think in the um, in C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Problem of Pain, he actually addresses it. He's one of the few philosophers who actually addresses this, this issue, and I appreciate Emerson bringing that up, uh, regarding the suffering of animals and the, um, uh, the hook and crook of the Darwinian evolutionary process um, that is, is problematic uh, in that level. Um, although I think there's, there's a different level that we need to address on the problem of suffering, animal suffering, and I think it's important to bring this point forward. Uh, the type of suffering that humans experience we try to put it upon animals and, and it's just not the same 
um, uh, doesn't have the same ontological status. Uh, for example, if I were to suffer uh, by getting some kind of a disease or getting a pain in my arm, that's a, a reality, a phenomenological reality for me here and now. Um, and not only that, but I'm also thinking about the reality of that for my family, what kind of what I'll be leaving for my family and thinking about in the future how this is going to spread. And actually, as uh, Milton said, the human mind, specifically the rational mind, can make a heaven out of hell and a hell out of heaven. We can do that to ourselves. We can make things worse than they are. Take any situation. You have some guy who can come in and make it worse because of how we think. With animal suffering, and I'm not trying to minimize it here by saying this, but the conscious reality of suffering is much deeper on for persons or human persons than it is for animals. And I think we try to project upon animals that, that type of suffering, and I don't think it's, um, it's fair or right to do that. Um, but to have this kind of Jurassic Park type of world um, where you see um, – the predators tearing apart the or the the uh, the prey and back and forth. It's a very structure of the very world that we live in requires that type of um, uh, situation. And I'm I'm not at this position at liberty. I haven't read as much as I'd like to, and I'm not an expert in this particular field. So I want to leave it at that and say that it's, it's more of um uh, as Augustine would say, in the fall of man and the fall of the angels, even nature itself was polluted by our choices and the choices of others. Um, of personal beings. Um, how that works and how there's a justification for that, I wish I could get into a lot more of that. I, uh, I don't have it at this time. Um, like I said, this is beyond my field. So Yeah, thank you. Um, and then one question I have for Emerson, and this is probably the last thing, because there were a few things, but I was trying to just find things related to the problem of evil specifically. Um, and one of the things you talked about, especially with regards to like moral re realism, is there's just there's possibilities of where we could explain moral realism without um, appealing to like theism, like atheistic compatible versions. So how do you look at that idea with the idea of with like maybe like these gratuitous sufferings? Um, the skeptical theist could say the same thing, or it's like, okay, well, we have these ideas. Um, um, where maybe it is just it's just possible and we don't know exactly how it works where God, there would be an explanation for these um, seemingly gratuitous sufferings if you understand what I'm saying um sorry could you could you elaborate on that a bit more? sure yeah yeah um it's just something I thought of at the last moment because I thought it was interesting you talked very brief I think your voice got cut out Isaac uh, Zach yeah sorry you're frozen man I just uh, asked for a clarification because um, I don't see the connection between skeptical theism and moral realism, but man, Zach is still frozen for me. <laughs> um, okay, so actually I wanted to, while Zach's um, internet connection gets straightened out, um, I sort of dodged your question earlier, I didn't mean to, about, um, you know, uh, you know, I find value in like my, my friends and family and stuff. Um, yeah, I think they're they're conscious creatures who are capable of you know suffering and flourishing, and I think that's where um, our moral concern concerns ultimately sort of terminate. Um, so that that also applies to a lesser degree with with animals, where you're right, like you know non-human animals don't have the same inner lives as human beings, but I think it's pretty obvious that they're conscious and that they can feel pain and, and suffering. Um, but obviously I'm more concerned with human suffering than I am with, you know, cow suffering, more concerned with cow suffering than I am with, you know, I don't know, insect suffering or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it is a problem for, for theism because you've got, uh, 
you know, these non-moral, non-rational agents that, you know, there's just seemingly very little possibility of growth or soul building um, from these, uh, from this suffering. And when you really try to, you know, contemplate the the weight of the just millions and millions of years of evolutionary history of animals like starving and tearing each other apart and um, just the horrors involved with, with the last, you know, few hundred million years, like, you know, it's, it's really hard to, to understand how that would be allowed. And it's like, you know, just pointing out that like, well, they're, you know, they don't have the same, they can't suffer in the same way that humans suffer, you know, it doesn't um, get rid of the problem. But, uh, you know, um, Alex O'Connor, um, cosmic skeptic had a video about the problem of animal suffering. Right. Just released a few hours ago, actually. Um, yeah. And I watched it. It's, it's excellent. Highly recommend it um, for people who want to hear more about the, uh, the problem of animal suffering, but yeah, it's a really serious problem. You know, the, uh, many of the ordinary responses to arguments from evil, you know, don't really work. And it seems like it's a problem that hasn't been taken that seriously. Like he was playing clips of William Lane Craig, who was just like being really flippant about it and like really not taking it seriously. So it's nice to see that that's starting to turn around a little bit and apologists are starting to actually like, you know, take this, problem as like seriously as it deserves because it's it's a pretty powerful formulation of the argument from evil i think awesome i'm back now i keeping my camera off just because my internet is being so wacky i, I apologize to both of you for this um i we're right about the um 90 minute mark so do you guys want to start to wrap things up here is there anything that you didn't get to touch on that you want to bring up quickly before we um wrap up here um i just want to mention really quickly per the, the i i didn't get your question zach but um mm-hmm. the uh just the whole conversation about moral realism is just sort of a non sequitur to, to the argument from evil debate. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to, to replant that flag, but you know, I didn't, um, I didn't really hear many responses to the three lines of evidence that I appealed to, um, about the biologically oriented distribution of pain and pleasure, gratuitous suffering and divine silence during tragedies. There we had, we talked a lot about, you know, skeptical theism in, in regards to the gratuitous suffering, um, you know, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I've already said what I what I have to say about that, but I haven't heard um, why I shouldn't take evidence or, or evil to be, you know, strong evidence against the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, and then Kaldun, do you have any kind of like last thoughts you want to bring up here before we uh, go, go away for, for the day? Um, yeah, let me um, wrap this up. I think I tried to address some of the things that um, Emerson brought up. Uh, the silence of God is not necessarily um, um, something that's a problem for many, because many people have experienced God's comfort through uh, suffering. And sometimes the, the teacher, let me say this as those who are actually suffering right now, a lot of times the teacher is silent during a test. And we only see the results of that afterwards. For example, when I went through my trial and my pain or my suffering or my hiddenness of God's situation, I only was able to see the goodness and the uh, the reality of, of God and the, the truth of the deep meaning of love, the deep meaning of goodness, the deep meaning of the meaning of life. After the storm, was I able to see that? And sometimes we would, uh, we have to go through that storm, that suffering, to be able to see some of the goodness um, of, and the reality of that. And sometimes that will only be available after afterwards, um, in the afterlife. And that is only assumed on theism, not on atheism. There is no hope for atheism. Atheism does not supply a grounding and a hope and a meaning and a purpose for life, especially when all hell breaks loose in your life. Uh, 
What reason do I continue to live instead of just jumping off the nearest cliff? That is not that there is one in Chicago. I think we'll find another reason for it, another way to do it. But <laughs> that's not the point. The point is, is there a reason for me to continue living beyond this life? And I think um, one more day, one more reason to continue to live is that my family is there. My, my community may be there for me. And ultimately, there's a God who loves me, who has a purpose and meaning and, and, and grounding for my life that's beyond me. And that gives me hope and meaning and purpose. I think that's important there over the, um, the silence of God is not always really silence. It's because I think something's silent doesn't mean it is. Um, the, um, the issue of animal suffering, we already addressed that a little bit. Of course, there's so much more to say about that one. The distribution of evil and um, goodness in the world, as I mentioned to you, if you look at human history, you will see that those who constantly violated the moral law had the moral law ultimately violate them and their communities and their cities. I think it does come back upon us heavily when we break God's moral law in a natural perspective and natural order. Sooner or later, it comes down to break us. Um, and John Locke argued that. Even Thomas Hobbes argued that in the atheistic perspective. So all of them seem to grant that, that there's a moral reality out there. And the more we break that moral reality, the more it comes back to haunt us. And finally, um, I want to I grant it in the, um, or, or land it in, in a, um, something from Victor uh, Frankel. Um, Frankel is, was in the concentration camps, and he, um, he said that when he was suffering and, and going through the difficulty that he went through, he said the following. He said, um, and Victor Frankel was a survivor of the Holocaust, which was evil, and it's only evil in an objective sense. If there's an objective moral law, I think that makes that so in a moral, realistic perspective. Um, a thought transfixed me for the first time in my life. I saw the truth as it's set into song by so many poets proclaimed as a final wisdom of so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can inspire or aspire. He said, I understand how a man has nothing left in this world may still know bliss, be it only for a brief moment in the contemplation of his beloved. In a position of other desolation when a man cannot express himself in a positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right and honorable way, in a way, that's a position a man can, through loving contemplation of an image he carries of his beloved, find achievement. And he says this, For the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words. The angels are lost in the perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. And that infinite glory gives me hope and purpose in my own life. And I hope that people can find that in their own when they, um, when they consider um, evil and suffering independently of God and of Christ, you end up with a world that's even worse. But if you grant it in some kind of theistic framework, that ultimately all evil will be dealt with and justice will be addressed. Uh, I think that gives me hope. And um, by the way, I just want to thank Emerson for his time and his robust analysis. It's challenged me in one way, in many ways. And um, I do want to express that gratitude to you, Emerson. Yeah, um, so I think that with respect to evil, the world looks about as we'd expect it to look if God didn't exist. Um, the facts about suffering in our world are not best predicted by the hypothesis that there's an all-loving, all-powerful God designing it. Atheists can do a much better job explaining the kinds, degree, and distribution of suffering we observe in our world. So just before we go, I just wanted to change the subject a bit and make one point before we part ways. Um, according to many believers, atheism is depressing. The hypothesis of indifference is depressing. When you look at the horrors of our world, saying that the universe is indifferent, you know, makes sense of why they exist, 
but it's not exactly comforting. But it's actually not correct for atheists to say that the universe is indifferent to our suffering. The hypothesis of indifference is often misunderstood. The hypothesis of indifference means that in the place where God once was, there is only indifference. It doesn't mean that the universe is indifferent to suffering. What I've found is that naturalists and critics of naturalism alike very often forget that their own minds are a part of the universe. You're not outside the natural world peering in. Humans are a part of the universe. And, you know, this isn't some kind of, like, word game or trick. You know, you're not standing outside of nature observing from a God's eye view. On naturalism, every thought you have, every feeling you have, your consciousness itself is as much a part of nature as the laws of gravity. Humans create purpose, so the universe is not purposeless. Humans are not indifferent to suffering, so the universe is not indifferent to suffering. The universe is not purposeless, and it's not indifferent. What has changed is that in the place where God once was, there's only indifference. But even from that, I draw the hopeful message that all we have is each other. Once we realize that all we have is each other, I think life really does get better. It causes us to focus on what matters and stay true to the earth and not set our eyes on otherworldly concerns. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emerson and Khaldun. And if there's nothing else, um, just over 90 minutes. So thank you so much for both of your time. One last time, I encourage everyone to follow both of these guys out. They're both great, smart people doing lots of great content stuff. But uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Susan, Kuruchi, Craig Reed, uh, Mo, everyone else. There's so many of you. Thank you. And have a good one, everyone. Goodbye.